Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati. Brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Hey team, well this week I have an absolutely superstar, the world's number one leading functional genomic specialist, Dr. Mohammed from Toronto and Canada, Dr. Mansour Mohammed is to guest. Now, he is a scientist and entrepreneur in the field of genomics and is regarded as one of the most innovative leaders in the emerging personalized medicine and lifestyle genomics space. Dr. Mohammed is a PhD and president and scientific officer at the DNA Company and is really considered to be a pioneer in medical genomics. He's a classically trained molecular immunologist who has received academic and industry awards, published numerous papers, and holds patents in the general fields of molecular diagnostics and genomics. Now, functional genomics is about understanding the DNA and how it behaves in every definition. And he's, Dr. Mansour is very different than many of the other DNA companies that I've uh, looked at recently, and that he doesn't just look at the single letters, if you like, of the DNA, but it looks in combinations of genes and how they're playing out. And this makes him very, very different because he sees DNA like a language rather than a vocabulary, a language that has grammar, sentence structure, syntax, and nuances. And you've got to be able to read genetic structure at the holistic level. Now, I'm super excited about Dr. Mansour's work, and I'm studying functional genomics at the moment, and it is the next level in personalized health. I'm really, really excited to bring this interview to you. It's taken me months to get Dr. Mansour on uh, this podcast, and I'm hoping later on in the year to get Dr. Mansour down to New Zealand for a lecture tour to speak to functional medicine practitioners down here as well as the public. So if you'd like to know more about that, please reach out to me and let me know. Um, I'd just like to remind you before I hand over to Dr. Mansour um, that my book launch is happening just next week. The time of, of this recording is the 6th of March and on the 11th of March, so by the time this recording actually comes out, my book will be live. It's called Relentless, and it tells the story of bringing my mum back after a major aneurysm, left her fighting for her life, and left her in a basically not much over a vegetative state, massive brain damage at the age of 74, and what I did to beat all the odds and bringing my mum back to health. All of the therapies I used, the protocols, the attitude, the mindset, the obstacles that we had to overcome, the problems that I discovered in our medical system, and on it goes. So this book is really, I'm, I'm so pleased to be able to bring it out. It's taken me two years to get this together and to bring it to the public, but I really want to pay it forward and I want to help thousands and thousands of other people facing difficult challenges to take them uh, head on with the right mindset to overcome great obstacles. So if you'd like to check that out, you can head over to my website at lisatarmity.com, hit the shop button, and you'll see all of my books there and my jewelry collections. But make sure you check out Relentless. It's really going to be worth a read. For anyone who has um, major medical problems at the moment or, of course, anyone who has a stroke, aneurysm, um, Alzheimer's dementia, anyone wants to know about brain rehabilitation or optimizing your brain function and who isn't interested in that, as well as the whole mental attitude and mindset that it takes to do all this. So without further ado, over to Dr. Mansour Muhammad. 
Well, hi, everybody. Lisa Tamadi here at Pushing the Limits. It's fantastic to have you back again. Now, I am just grinning from ear to ear. I can't stop smiling because I've been waiting for this interview for weeks. I have a very, very special guest, Dr. Mansour Mohammed, all the way from Toronto in Canada. Dr. Mansour, how are you going? I am great, Lisa. And likewise, it's been something that I've been looking forward to. To the audience, please forgive me. I'm a little bit sleepy from jet lag from last night, but Lisa has been pumping me up. And so we're going to have some fun at this. <laughs> now, I, I know what it's like when you're a little bit jet lagged and you're a man very much in demand. So I'm just so excited to have a, a little bit of time with you. Now, Dr. Mansour, um, I, I do the whole introduction on a separate recording, but Dr. Mansour, can you give us a little bit of background about your, uh, what you did your PhD in, your, your, a little bit of a brief history of your background? Sure. Uh, genes, genetics has always have always been my love um the study of how this operating manual just just thinking just just dialing it back and thinking that the human being we've got this operating manual that by every definition of the word it behaves like an operating manual and, and to think that it's there and to think that one day it might be accessible and that we could read this and we could read it intelligently and just simply understand myself much less much less anyone else has always been my love and so i started my phd is in uh, applied molecular genetics and immunology so i was looking at the genetics of the immune system i was very very fortunate to have an awesome mentor she was then the chair of um, molecular biology at UCLA, invite me to UCLA. So I had an awesome couple of postdocs there where I got deeper and deeper involved in genetics. But a real pivotal point happened when I was then invited to come to Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And it was that heady time just about the Human Genome Project reaching its you know, sort of pinnacle. And I was asked because of the work that I had been doing at UCLA to come over to Baylor and start a company. And the goal of this company was to begin looking at multiplex genomics. In other words, to really do the, you know, the barrage searches into the human genome, not one gene at a time, but looking at the entire genome in pathway type manners. Now, initially, we applied this knowledge to cancers. We applied this knowledge to developmental disorders, uh, syndromes, Prader-Willi syndrome, autistic spectrum disorders, and so on and so forth. And about 15 years ago, after many years of doing what I call disease genomics, looking at the operating manual, looking at when the operating manual is broken and what happens from a disease perspective, then I sort of thought, okay, well, that was fun. That was good. That was, but why should I not look at the operating manual when nothing is properly broken, but just the operating manual so that, so that we can tell presumptively healthy individuals, how to stay healthy or how to get over the type of chronic illnesses. So this is what I've been doing for the last 15 years, studying, researching, and applying the knowledge of the human genomic operating manual so that we, we, we can just simply understand how does the body work, which clearly there's an individuality to that, obviously. I mean, we are human beings. We all, our cells, our organs, our bodies, all have to accomplish the same jobs, but we do these jobs with nuanced differences. Some of us less optimal, more optimal, more efficient, less efficient. And when we can zone into that, when we can read this operating manual from that perspective, uh, really, Lisa, miracles happen. The, the sort of insights that you get, the nuances that you can tease out, 
it really has transformed the clinicians we train, the patients we work with. It transforms, it empowers the individual to yes. understand how their body works and what they might do to obtain that optimal health. This is, and this is like super exciting, and I can feel your passion coming through despite the jet lag um, for, for this area. And, and it is now my new passion uh, as of the last uh, maybe two months or six weeks or however long it is now that I've been diving into this world and just going, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, this is just – this is just the next level in the information that I've been searching for to try to understand because everything seems so um, generic uh, and yes. this is a chance for personalized health. Now, Dr. Okay. Mansour, you are the uh, president and founder of the DNA company, which yes. is um, offering it direct to public and in, in conjunction with clinicians um, a couple of reports, uh, so a full yes. genomic report and a hormone report. Yes. Um, and I want to tease apart a little bit today, why should people even consider having a look at this, this sort of testing, what benefits mm -hmm. they can get out of it? Um, and I'd like to also tease a little bit about um, Looking at other, like I've, I've looked at a lot of gene companies uh, that do gene t uh, d DNA testing, yes. um, and it, it, you you had an analogy on uh, Bulletproof Radio that I heard you on yes. Dave's show, who's amazing, uh, yes. love Dave and his work. Um, that was about that the most people are looking at it. DNA as a vocabulary and not a language. And that just seemed yeah. a light bulb up in my there head where I realized, okay, so it's not the siloed genes looking at them individually, but looking at cascades and pathways and combinations of genes is where that interpretation has been missing today. 100%. So I always say, you know, Lisa, anyone that is in the data business, regardless of whatever data you're collecting, data is really quite dumb data in and of itself doesn't mean anything mm. unless you know what to ask of the data, unless you know how to triage, how to approach the data. So when we use the analogy as DNA, the operating manual, the genome, it really meets all of the classifications and descriptions of a language. Thus far, we've been looking at DNA and genetics from a language perspective purely as a vocabulary exercise. The more words we know, the better we presume to think we know the language. And as much as that is important, as per the analogy that I, that I drew with, with on Dave's show, a person simply knowing more vocabulary by no means mean they understand the language. And so when it comes to DNA, when it comes to genetics, when it comes to how this awesome operating man manual, the architecture of it, it's not just about vocabulary. It's not just about the individual genes. So here are the two layers implicit in your question that we do a bit differently and why we need to do that differently and why it's important that it's done this way. The first is this. When you're looking at the DNA of the person, i.e. the genetic makeup, the vast, vast majority of companies right now, they're looking at things called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. In other words, they're looking at places, which is absolutely important, they're looking at spelling variations in this operating manual. And of course, these spelling variations, these single nucleotide polymorphisms, mm -hmm. will impart to you, me, Jane, Paul, Peter, the same cellular job that we're all going to do these spelling differences can impact the efficiency with which we do that job, and that is important to know. 
But while we're at that point of spelling, you see per any language, if I wrote a paragraph, I might have spelling errors in that paragraph, but there are also examples where I may have inadvertently deleted a sentence or deleted a couple of sentences in that paragraph. Now, if the analogy here is that the gene is the paragraph, mm -hmm. so your operating manual are these 23 volumes. Think of a, think of a 23 volume encyclopedic set, these awesome huge volumes. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to inherit two of these 23 volumes, one from mom, one from dad. And these volumes are properly arranged. And when we open up any page, let's say we go to volume three from mom, mm -hmm. volume three from dad, we open up page four on each of those volumes and we look at paragraph five, page four, volume three, we're going to see the same paragraph. We're going to see the same information from dad's gene, paragraphs of genes, and mom's gene. We're going to see the same information. But when we look really carefully, when we look at those paragraphs really carefully, we might find that there's some spelling differences. Those are the snips. We may also find that on either dad or mom's paragraph, a sentence was missing. And I just taught this mm. over the weekend. So I was in the auditorium and I said, okay, here is an instruction that was waiting for me coming to this auditorium to give this lecture. Dr. Mansour, go to auditorium B, enter the left door, approach the podium from the right side, press the enter button, begin your lecture. That's an instruction. Mm -hmm. That's a paragraph. That's an instruction. And that's the equivalent of a gene. Now, in that paragraph, there may have been a few spelling errors or changes that may have confused me a little as to what the instructions are. But when I look at it carefully, I could sort of still figure it out. Okay. But if in that paragraph, the sentence that says, go to auditorium B was missing, and of course, there are multiple auditoriums. All of the other parts of the instructions are there, but I can really be confused as to what is the ultimate thing that I'm supposed to do. Wow, this is called an indel. So in our genes, not only do our genes have snips, many important genes actually have places within them that are missing. Yes. Unless and until we test for those type of changes, we're by no means getting the full picture of what is happening. The third thing is this, not only do we have SNPs, not only do we have indels, there are occasions where the entire gene is missing. Yes. So I'm supposed to show up, I got to the hotel where the conference is at, and the instruction just telling me what, it's just not even there. So here I'm in the lobby going, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. This example is a genetic phenomenon, keeping the analogy. This is called a CNV, mm -hmm. copy number variation. You see, because we were supposed to have two copies of that paragraph five, page four, volume three. Sometimes, like believe it or not, when we go to page four, We've opened up mum's volume three, dad's volume three. There they are. We're going to read both of the instructions because that's what your cell has to do. At every given moment when there's a job to be done, your cell goes and pulls the volume that has that instruction, takes down mum's copy, takes down dad's copy, opens up and reads the instruction. Now, 
In the case of a CMV copy number variation, we can open up MUMS volume three, page four. There is paragraph one, paragraph two, paragraph three, paragraph four, paragraph six. Oops, wait a minute, where's paragraph five? Yeah. It's, it's gone, there's paragraph four, there's paragraph six. I look over at dad, he's got all of the paragraphs or vice versa. And sometimes, Lisa, both paragraph fives are gone. Mm. Okay, so the point of the first answer to your question, why we do things a bit differently is we're not just in the business of collecting data for data's sake. We're collecting data, i.e. we're doing gene testing to understand a process. When we design genetic tests, we don't begin with genes. We begin on a whiteboard saying, what is the thing in the human body that we want to study? What is the thing that we want to study? Forget genetics, just good old-fashioned medical textbook, human physiology. Do we want to study the way the neurochemicals are produced and bind and respond? Do we want to study how the human body makes sex hormones? Something we should talk about when it comes to human performance. I'm going to get into that. So how does the male and female body makes progesterones? androgens, estrogen, and then we map that out. Forget genetics. We just map out how does the human body do that. Now, of course, if the human body is having to do something, then it means there are genetic instructions for that thing. Mm -hmm. So only when we map out the cellular, the cellular biology, the, the cascade, only when we map that out, then we come in and we pencil it. Aha, this gene is responsible for here. This gene is responsible for there such that at the end of the exercise, we've got a genetic test that already tells a story. It, the, the result from that genetic test is telling you the entire cascade. Step one. Step two, we look at each of those genes that are telling us the story, and we ask, are there SNPs that are important? Are there indels that are important? Are there CNVs that are important? Because all three make a difference. Wow. And so the first part to the answer to your question is, if you've been looking at genetic tests that are only reporting SNPs, you are dramatically limiting the variations that you and I and every other person have within our genome. So you're missing the nuances that are in your language that clarify the job to be done. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So that actually puts it together in my head because I've been studying this. And I know, like, for example, the GSTT1 gene and the yes. um, uh, detox and anti antioxidant um, yes. pathway Function. Yes. can be one of those types of genes that can be completely deleted. Completely deleted, absolutely. Yeah. And, of course, it belongs to a super family, so there are multiple GST genes. That's two minutes on that. Yep. If you're going to design the human body, and you're going to say, listen, one day we're going to make this thing called a human being and we're going to put him or her in this wonderful world. But mind you, he or she is going to have to deal with some toxic insults, both from without and from within. Yes. Where would you, and you know that, where would you put your detox defenses? Well, there are about four places. If you're an intelligent designer, you would put your detox def defenses at least in four places. You would say, how and where do things get into the human body? Mm -hmm. Well, dermal, skin, the nose, nasal, bronchial, lung, yep. the GI tract. Okay, yep. so those are how things get in. And unsurprisingly, you would want to make sure your detox genes and the things that you would want to make sure they're super active in those places. Right, right, right. And then you'd, you'd also say, well, look, at the end of the day, things are always going to get past borders. 
inside of the body, there are waste products. So then I'm also going to put a detox organ, the liver. When we go to the human body, this is where we find these detox genes expressing themselves. Mm -hmm. And each of the GSTs have subspecialties. Some of them are more important in the nasal bronchial tract, some of them more important in the GI tract, and so on and so forth. So when you know the story that you want to read about the body, you know how to read the manual and interpret is the GSTT1 gene deleted or not. This is a massive implication to the human body. Can you imagine the GSTT1 gene is one of, if not the most important bio-transforming, anti-oxidizing enzymes in the body per its name and its gene and its enzyme. And if the person doesn't have it, literally it's not in their manual. The GSTT1 gene is on volume 22. And if that paragraph, you have not inherited it from either mom or dad, you are missing an enzyme in your body that is one of the most radically important detox. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not compatible with life, but it most certainly means you could not be the obtuse person who says, well, you know, what do heavy metals mean after all? They're not that bad. Oh, you know what? My uncle smoked until he was 80 years old. I'm going to smoke as well. You can't compare yourself to that person because you don't have one of the most awesome detox genes, for example. So you don't have a good defense mechanism. And so like the detox is actually the first protocol before the immune system even does its job. So um, I'm I'm excited to get my test back because I haven't uh, gotten through the reports yet. Um, I'm I'm suspecting that I have a problem in my GST genes because from a very young age, for example, I've been an asthmatic as a a, a, a severe asthmatic as a child. And I'm very hypersensitive to smells and uh, oh. anything. So I'm like a canary That's in the gold mine. T1. T1. So oh. The T1, which is theta. Yes. Very important in the liver. P1, pi, GST, P1 is the one that's really important in your nasal, bronchial, and lung cavity. Individuals with a suboptimal P1 are at extreme risk of early ectopic asthmas. They're the ones that if they go into the shopping mall, you know, the perfumery section, they've got to avoid the perfumery section, right? Those are the GSTP ones, particularly. Wow. Um, It would be fascinating to see if that's what comes back. And so if you were deleted into them, we'll get onto hormones next because I really Mm -hmm. want to uh, dive into there. Um, But just to to look at the GST genes, um, if you don't have... You either have only one inherited GST one gene from yes, um, yes. your mother or your father, and you're missing the other ones, or you're missing both altogether. Are you yes. more likely to have um, uh, you, you're more likely to have toxins coming in that you can't deal with as well? And then your immune system is this where autoimmune or part of the brilliant, brilliant question. Uh, just before we answer that, I had mentioned there were two layers to differentiate. So, so just so that we close the chapter on what we do differently. So I'm going to come back and answer now. We'll take it forward. We just mentioned that there you have to be mindful of the three different layers of variations. SNPs, indels, where pieces of the gene are missing, and CNVs, where the whole gene may be missing. The other quick differentiator, bringing back the analogy of a language, bringing back the story of the human body, it's this. And I told the audience this. It was an audience of clinicians in Phoenix this weekend. I said, have you ever read a really good 
you know, suspense novel. And in that suspense novel, the novel, the, the author's painting the character and you're thinking he's the bad guy, you know, and, and he's following around the heroine and, you know, he looks a bit shady. <laughs> and then until or unless you've read the entire book, you only find out that he was a protector or he was something, he was a guardian. In other words, he wasn't the bad, bad guy. Now, what the heck does this have to do with genes? The second layer, when we mentioned that we do things differently, we said that DNA is really a language by all of its definitions with its nuances is this. There are many genes, Lisa, where if you were to look at that gene as a standalone, and if you were to look at the genotype of that gene, in other words, what version do you have? Yes. You may think you have either the best version or the worst version, depending. And you may think you have the best version, for example, but it is not until you look at a completely independent gene that has nothing to do with this gene that the version of that independent gene wow. colors whether your actual optimal version of gene A will stay optimal or not. Or conversely, whether you thought you had the suboptimal version of A, the bad guy, yeah. but when you read the full story, something else tells you what you thought was the bad guy was not the bad guy. Wow. Okay. And this is what is called epistasis. You see, we're all concerned about epigenetics, which is important. Epigenetics, how are we reading? Are we actually going to read that paragraph on the page or are we not going to read? That's epigenetics. But nobody is talking about epistasis. Epistasis is... After we've read the page, after we've read the paragraph, we cannot yet make a conclusion until we read 10 pages later, 15 pages later. Something there will bring to life, will color what we read on page three. Do you get that? Yes. So, so for example, if you're, if you're looking at a specific gene and it has an allele that is, say, the faster allele, say for the CYP17A1 gene in the hormone uh, cascade, um, if it's a fast one, that's not in and of itself a good or a bad thing. It depends on the other things. It depends on Exactly. So that's what you're you're meaning. Exactly. And one of the best examples of that is this, the BDNF gene, the BDNF gene, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, one of the most important genes in the brain, in in the whole human genome that tells the brain how to secrete this awesome thing that heals the brain. Yes. You and I were having a conversation about a loved one. Yes. So that loved one's BDNF was going to be hugely important in how that loved one recuperated from the challenge that she had met, BDNF. Now, the BDNF gene has an important variation, a SNP this time, uh-huh. which is either a G version or an A version. Okay. The G version, G as in George, as in guanine, is the optimal version of BDNF, the optimal version. So if you're a GG, blessed. You like more. Hey, that's good. You yep. are naturally predisposed. You have the inherent, the innate ability to make more BDNF. And let wow. me tell you, that's a good thing any which way you slice it. Wow. Now, an independent gene the TPH2 gene, the tryptophan hydroxylase gene, the TPH2 gene, which is involved in how the body deals with serotonin, okay? It too has a SNP. It comes in a G version 
and a T version, G as in George, T as in Thomas. The G version is considered optimal. Mm -hmm. But hold on, if you happen to be GG for TPH2 and GG for BDNF, ostensibly both of these genotypes for each of their genes are optimal. But if you were GG for both, it creates a haplotype. It creates a combination that is an at-risk combination. And it is, it, it, is, it is the negative combination. It is the, it is the deleterious combination when it comes to certain aspects of human behavior. These wow. individuals, when you're GGGG, they exhibit poor inhibition of negative emotional stimuli. In other words, when oh. something negatively, emotionally affects them, their ability to quench it, their ability to say, you know what, I'm not going to focus, I'm not going to hamster wheel, constantly yep. play that over and over and over again. They have, a, they have a hard time giving up that. When something gets under their skin, so to speak, emotionally, yep. they have a really hard time getting over it. So they have a strong imprint, the memory imprint. A very strong EMI, emotional memory imprint. Wow. And of course, the stronger you EMI, emotionally memory imprint, the easier you emotionally memory recall, EMR. Mm -hmm. It's because the deeper something is imprinted, then yep. the smallest cue, you have a love, you have a partner, and you know, you love each other to bits. But like human beings, you're going to have your ups and downs. I mean, it, we're human beings after all. And on one particular evening, you were both getting on each other's nerves and she was wearing that beautiful red dress. And that was the evening that you both said things you shouldn't have said and it hurt. The person that has this phenomena, whenever he sees his wife with that red dress, down the road, everything's perfect. You, you're going out to a birthday party. You're both happy. It, it rises back up. He remembers that evening more wow. than he should. It brings back to the surface and vice versa. This is that poor inhibition of negative emotional stimuli that lead to profound memory imprinting and therefore profound memory recall. The point of all of this, and the reason I mentioned this is, and we're going to come back to the GSTT one, was to clarify, you see, Lisa, it's not just about even the type of things you're looking for. What matters is the interpretation, Lisa. Combination. That we are, the combination. Yeah. That we are reading the manual, not just flipping and picking <laughs> words is, out. This is where the comma is or where the, the apostrophes are. This is... This is and like, exclamation someone, mark. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, exactly. Someone that is like that would be more prone to PTSD. 100. That's the point, actually. And, and that is further exacerbated based on the noradrenergic pathway, which dramatically increases the risk of PTSD. It is exacerbated based on how quickly they are removing their dopamine and noradrenaline via Compton and air. So what happens is you begin to pixelate a picture. You've got a, a low-resolution picture. And then the more intelligent information you put in, you start to increase the resolution of that picture. You start to get a clearer picture of the person that you're looking at but to do so you've got to know where to pixelate if i'm trying to get a better look at what lisa's face look like i don't want to be pixelating your toes right? <laughs> so, you know i need to pixelate your face yes and, and, and this this ability to read intelligently lisa that i stress intelligently read the human genome yeah uh, that's what we do that's that what we do
that is absolutely insane and uh, in, in the implications because yeah i would have said oh you've got a ggg um uh, bang 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 yeah, you know exactly good um, exactly. but again i've just understood that nuance that that Indeed. combination of things and now i can't wait to get my reports and my family's Indeed. reports so i can because this helps us also understand like the speed in which your dopamine is um processed and gotten rid of or the speed of which your serotonin and all of these things have effects on our personality and that we're not a hundred percent to blame for some of our deficits oh gosh no oh gosh no in fact no. what this needs to do, on the one hand it creates the empathy of appreciating look yes this is how someone this is their predisposition now on the other hand it is not to create a sense of fatalism. Well, that's the way I am. I can't. No, no. I have found, and I have done, the only thing that I've done probably somewhat unique and special, Lisa, is I have reviewed thousands upon thousands of profiles in terms of my peers in the world. Most of the, my peers that work at the level I do would say Dr. Mansour has probably reviewed the most genomic profiles in the world. I don't know no. if that's true or not, but I certainly have reviewed several thousand, meaning meeting the patient, speaking with their doctor, looking at their health profiles, and looking at underlining genetic phenomena to see if we can understand what's going on. You know what I found, Lisa, is I found when you empower a person to understand a predisposition, you, you might think it leads to fatalism, mm. but when you explain the functional reality, it actually does the opposite. It gives the person a sense of ownership, and then they can finally say, you know, I have dealt with my entire life I've been this way, and I just, I didn't even know why it was that way. Now that I can even understand what's going on, it gives me some closure, yes, yeah. but it now gives me something to appreciate. I can, I can envision how this is working, how my emotions are working. I can now go, you know what? As soon as I see that stimulus that would have give, got me on that slippery slope, I'm going to stop. I'm yeah. not going to go down that slippery slope because I know if I do, there's no coming back for the next two weeks. So what we wow. found is that this creates yeah. all around. It just creates empowerment, which brings me now to the question that you asked about GSTT1. And you are, your connections are on point, Lisa. The connection between the detox mechanism of the body, here's the threefold. And of course, it's a bit more complicated, but it's also remarkable. You can take complex systems, break them down to building blocks, and keep the accuracy. So there are three building blocks we need to look at when we connect detoxification pathways in the body and the immune system. And the, the only thing missing is the inflammatory system. Mm -hmm. So the triangulation between toxins and immune responses goes like this. The human body is insulted with whatever it's insulted with, the, the intentional, the unintentional of our daily lives. Those toxins enter the body or they try to enter the body. Step number one, how individually efficient is that person at negating, biotransforming, neutralizing those toxins either before they can enter the body, such as in the mucosa of the lung, the, the alveoli lumen, the, the, the lining of the lung, such as the GI mucosa, and so on and so forth. Can we, can we neutralize it so the toxin doesn't even get into the bloodstream? And of course, to the degree that it gets into the bloodstream, can we liver hepatically detoxified so that at least it does not bioaccumulate 
in the body so that at least it does not reach levels that are unsafe for us. Step number one. Now, to, there are genes, there are whole gene families, there are whole cellular processes, GSTs, glutathionization, mm -hmm. UGTs, glucuronidation, methylation, sulfonation, N-acetylation. These are the major enzymatic steps linked to genetic genes that are responsible for biotransforming, neutralizing things in our body. Okay, wow. so what we need to do is we say, what is the lifestyle environmental context of the person? What are they getting exposed to? Yeah. Are they living in a home that is ridden with mold? Are they living and so on and so forth? Okay, step number one. Step number two, how good are they at individually neutralizing those toxins so as to not bioaccumulate them? To the degree that those, whatever the answer to that question is, we're going to have an individualization in which some individuals are better at getting rid of toxins and others are not. If a person is not genetically, innately efficient, optimal at getting rid of their toxins, then what happens? Well, what do toxins do? Toxins cause cellular inflammation. Mm. Okay, and they cause inflammation via any number of methodologies. They can inflame cell surface receptors. They can get into the cell and create overproduction of oxidants. They can hamper the energy modules, the mitochondria. That's one of the places you never want toxins getting to. And of course, they can get into the nuclei. They can get into the yeah, vaults, the libraries wow. of, the, of, the, of the operating manual, and they can start to change gene expression. So toxins do all of these things. Ultimately, you see, Lisa, 15, not even 15 years ago, 10 years ago, if you told at a medical conference there's this concept of inflammation, you'd have a lot of professionals, well, come on, you've got to be more specific than that. We actually now know that there is a phenomena called chronic inflammation. And regardless of what stimulated that inflammation, be it a bacterial toxin, be it an inorganic chemical, it, be it a physical inflammation, it does not matter. The way the cell looks, the way the cell begins to behave when it has been insulted with toxins, with exposures, remarkably is the same regardless of the stimulus because inf chronic inflammation has hallmarks that are similar regardless of the stimulus. Now, wow. at that juncture, when the cell is inflamed, when the machinery in the cell isn't doing the job that it's meant to do properly, that cell now starts to be like this pulsing red thing just by analogy. In other words, the body is looking at it going, something's happening in there. It's not behaving the way it should. Okay. So now we're going to have two steps. The body now has an anti-inflammatory set of steps to, to quiesce, to bring the cell back into line. To say, whoa, whoa, hold on. You're starting to misbehave. There's too much inflammation. This is where a cellular process known as methylation comes in. Ah. Cellular methylation can be viewed. It's a detox reaction, by the way, but it is a cellular cascade that is radically responsible for bringing your cell from that humming, inflamed, you know, ticking bomb type of modality back down to a quiescent behavior. That's cellular methylation. Now, 
to the degree that you're able to do that because cellular methylation is a multi-gene cascade, multiple places where things could be not as optimal as we would like. Wow. So to the degree that we then triage, we stratify the patient based on their detox potential. We then stratify them based on their anti-inflammatory potential. Now, to the degree that we are not quiescing that chronic inflammation, this is where the immune system can be activated. Right. The immune yeah. system was meant to be activated in acute episodes, not chronic episodes. Uh-huh. The more you ask the cell to produce antibodies, IgGs, IgAs, IgMs, particularly IgGs, the more you keep telling that's the, the body, pump out IgG, something's not working right, something is there, which is why chronic infections are now very well understood to be linked to autoimmune diseases. The infection that did not go away constantly demanded of the body to produce antibodies, and somewhere along the line, those antibodies begin to forget what was the bacteria or what, and what was the self? And now we just start shooting friend and foe alike. Wow. This is the triangulation that has become now a focal point of so many diseases, um, some diseases being more relevant to the whole, you know, things like Lyme disease. Do you guys have Lyme disease down in New Zealand? I think, yes, we do. And I think, you know, um, we have a massive problem with like thyroid, Hashimoto's, um, mm -hmm. those sort of, autoimmune diseases, Crohn's, IBS. Um, yep. So this is, this is where the body is actually going in overdrive. So the, the original detox genes haven't been able to do their job because job. of the combination. And the, Step one, yep. exactly. And then Step two, there's inflammation. Yep. And then the immune... Methylation system. didn't do the job it was supposed to do. And now we are triggering. So there are meta-analyses, meta-analyses that show the deletion of the GSTT1 gene or overall poor glutathionization has been strongly linked with ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, IBD, strongly linked with ectopic asthmas, particularly GSTP1 and early childhood asthmas. Then, of course, if you, if you double down on poor, meth, on poor detoxification, with poor methylation, you really start seeing clinical the, outcomes. You know, yes. yes, yes. So, so if we it, it, then we, we we find out all this about ourselves, we find out we've got either the good or the bad or the ugly, um, mm -hmm. and these combinations are not ideal. Then mm -hmm. how you know we've got this information now? Now we want to know what the heck do I do about this? I can't mm -hmm. change my DNA. Of what course are the not. things that these reports that your company does, for example? where it can actually lead to some successful outcomes. Yes. Obviously, avoiding cigarette smoke or exhaust food fumes of and course. things you're a GST deleted. But, but beyond that, nutraceuticals, nu nutrients, uh, what can be done to Brilliant. help people? So it starts with, so the first thing I would have to say is um, we take our reports only so far. So the actual report we take it to the point of explanation of what's happening. And there are um, certain recommendations, but the real magic must still come from a trained population. You know, so what, so what we're Religion. doing is we're also yeah. training a certain class of healthcare providers. We might call them the, the, the modern day biohackers, the healthcare providers who are really sleuths. 
They're no longer just, you know, pill pushers. They're looking. So I just wanted to clarify, we take the reports, we explain the systems, we explain what's happening, but we also have to be careful so that people aren't jumping to conclusions and self-treating based. So you still want to have someone who understands the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's a second part of what our company does as per my travel schedule. I'm constantly traveling, teaching people, teaching auditoriums full of doctors who are now saying, listen, if I keep practicing medicine the way that I'm practicing, I'm just dealing with a diseased population. I'm not healing people. Okay, so with that minor uh, clarification, now we come to, let me paint a a picture, paints a thousand words, not to be, uh, you know, blasé. Here's what I like people to picture. And and here's what you'd want to picture for yourself, Lisa. Picture a slide. Okay, so there's a slide, your screen, okay, and a circle. And then picture a circle on that screen. Somewhere on your screen, there's a circle. Now, because you're a human being, your circle is going to be on the screen. In other words, this is the screen of all human beings. And your circle, you, your circle is somewhere on the screen. Now, what does the circle represent? It represents your genetic makeup. Or it represents a part of your genetic makeup for whatever biochemical process we were studying. So the circle is Lisa's genomic pathway. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want you to then think of an equilateral triangle, an equal three-sided triangle that just perfectly encompasses your circle. Just perfectly. Your circle is perfectly encompassed just right in that triangle. And the apices of this triangle are labeled environment, lifestyle, and nutrition. Yes. What we're learning and what we're recognizing more and more is Other than extreme cases, other than extreme cases, and there are, mind you, extreme cases where particular genetic combination was really just a real doozy. And in other words, we're going to see some, you know, with with the best of efforts, we're going to see some probably deleterious outcomes. Fair enough. But other than those extreme cases, for the vast majority of us, despite any inefficiencies we might have, if we find the right triangulation of lifestyle, nutrition, and uh, lifestyle, nutrition, and environment, if we could figure that out and it perfectly matches our circle, this is optimal health. Wow. So the image, the image of optimal health is when you can find your genomic makeup, your circle, for whatever you're studying, and contextualize it perfectly within the right for you, for Lisa, not for Mansoor, not for Joanne, for Lisa. What is Lisa's optimal lifestyle, nutrition, and environment? Now, the problem is, Lisa, when we begin working with a patient, obviously, and, and clinicians with their patients, the vast majority of individuals, they do not know their circle. They don't know what's the genomic info. So they don't. And if you don't know your circle, your triangulation choices of lifestyle choices, nutrition choices, and environmental choices are often skewed and they are not synergistic with your circle. So the first objective of this, do you get that picture? Yes. This is why, you know, when people say, is the keto diet good? Well, it it depends on your genes. It depends on your genes. And And not just your genes, it depends on how you're using your body. If you are, if you took, if you took, five 
identical individuals. They were, you know, quintuplets, identical quintuplets, if such a thing exists today. The same genes. And you give those five people at 35 years old the exact diet. But if those five, one of them was an ultra marathon runner and, 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 and extreme sports enthusiast, the other was a couch potato, I don't know, doing I, whatever. Uh, yep. <laughs> The other was a, a, a you know an accountant who had a nine to five job, weekend exercise warrior, but from Monday to Friday really just goes to work, comes home, eats, goes to bed, and so on and so forth. Even with the same genes, you can put the nutrition in and obviously not expect the same outcome. No, because they so have you've got required. you've got to know the genomic legacy. You've got to know what is the lifestyle context, what is the nutrition context, what is the environmental context. If one of these quintuplets moved from your gorgeous country and moved to a massive metropolis with you know, air quality that breathing for one day is the equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes, in your beautiful country, he or she may have gotten away with a GSTT1 or GSTP1 suboptimability. He's living in those, you know, that, that wonderful country of yours. He's practicing otherwise good, not eating foods with pesticides and herbicides and so on and so forth. And he was going about life actually not really realizing there was any suboptimability until one day his job took him to a big metropolis somewhere. He lost track of the quality of his foods. He's just so busy. He's day in, day out, breathing the equivalent of a pack of cigarettes. And then six months into this, all things else is equal. His genes are equal, but he now starts to show symptomologies that he would never have had in a different environment. In a nice, clean environment, yeah. Right. So, so this triangulation is so important. Now, coming back to the specifics, once we understand the pathways, we begin first with the don'ts. It may seem simple, but it actually enters, uh, Lisa, into, it's not just about the obvious things that you might imagine. I give the example, Lisa, and by the way, it's relevant to the GSTT1 gene. Now, GSTT, let's focus on the T1. It's the big sister in the glutathione family. So GSTT1. Now, it's what's called a phase two detox pathway, phase two detox, because when a toxin enters the human body, we typically go through two steps. We take toxin A, we convert it into an intermediate B. Yep. Then we take B, further convert that to C. C is what leaves the body. The B to C part of the transformation, that's where the GSTs come in. The A to B, this is where your cytochrome P450s come in. That's the phase one biotransforming enzymes. Now, <clears throat> if I were to ask you something, Lisa, if I were to say, would it be a good practice for a person to start drinking a nice cup of green juice, you know, like some juice, juice broccoli and some maybe put a little bit of uh, baby spinach in there, uh, uh, a bit of ginger, a bit, you know, maybe some curcumin at the end of it. Would that be a really healthy drink? Yeah, something I do every day. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. It's good. Yeah. Beautiful. And it is healthy, generally speaking. Yeah. So now someone puts a blog together giving this recipe of something that's ostensibly so healthy. And there's this mechanic who works in a shop all day with fumes and so on and so forth. He read this blog, she read this blog, and she decides that before she goes to work, 
she's going to have this beautiful juice, this green juice that they read was so healthy and it was a detox juice. And they feel good about themselves. Hold on, hold on. Many of the ingredients in that green juice, many of the ingredients in that green juice turn on certain phase one CYP450 enzymes so as to accelerate the conversion of A to B. Now, some of the toxins A that this mechanic was facing in her shop, in the, in the, in the mechanic shop that she was working at, when she converts A to B, we know that the B, the intermediate, is actually more toxic than A. Wow. And by the way, she did not know she was a GSTT1 deleted individual. Oh. So what did we do to this young woman? We encouraged the things, the A's that were getting into her body when she drank that beautiful, healthy green juice. She more rapidly converted her A's into B's. And then, oops, can't she can't turn B's into C's very well. Wow. Even something that would ostensibly be really healthy by normal standards, do you see? That's a healthy nutrition on the triangle. But we did not ask what was the environment on the triangle. And so now we have skewed her triangle away because in her genetic circle, she does not have the GSTT1. Do you get that picture? Yeah, I do. And this is a little bit frightening for people listening to this who might be going, well, what's the point then? I can't, oh. you know, this is where the reports have their super value, isn't it? Because then we can know. That That's the point. It's, it's actually not discouraging. It's, it's finally, and this is our goal, it's finally meant to unravel those nuances that there is such a thing. I mean, and how many of us, you know, we, we do something that 20 other co-workers swore was the best thing since sliced bread, and then we tried it, and not only did it not work, we actually felt like crap after yeah. or less yeah. healthy. And we were all aware of this until it's, what has it led? It's led for most of us to become numb. We just kind of get to that point where we're like, well, I don't know what's right for me or wrong for me. Plus, today it says one thing, tomorrow it says another thing. So creating some sanity from this confusion is what this goal is about. And it can be done, Lisa, when you take your time to read things intelligently and to explain things. That's why we've got these epiphany moments that constantly... I like my consults with patients because... I feed off of the energy when a patient just, you see that epiphany where they're commissioned and they light up and they go, ah, that's why, that's why this hasn't been working. Well, that's why that was better for me. Or that's why I took methyl B12 because everyone's telling me methyl B12 is the best version. But Mm. every time I take methyl B12, is it just in my head? I get a headache. Every time I take methyl B12, I get a And then I go, no, actually I get one too. I can't take methyl B12. That's an actual thing. I can't take methyl B12 because my methylation cascade is inconsistent with me taking methyl B12. When I take adenosyl B12, all completely different. Wow. So this is getting really granular for each individual. And this is what makes me so excited. And before we go on, we have to go and cover off the hormone report. Yes. 
this is something that I, um, um, and, and this is, you know, for men and women, but I wanted to focus a little bit more in on the woman. We've got very complicated yeah, yeah. hormones in households, but this, yes. the cascade for men and women is very, very similar, isn't it? Yes, it is. It so, is remarkably. This is what we taught at the course on the weekend after introducing genomics. It was the first open the eyes that the cascade, the circadian rhythm with which the human body converts progesterones into androgens, androgens into estrogens. Men, we do not have a monopoly over androgens. Women, you do not have a monopoly over estrogens. In fact, your estrogens come from androgens. Men, we have estrogens as well. It's just a matter of the circadian rhythm. When is it happening? Mm -hmm. How quickly is it happening? And of course, ultimately, how much of any of these hormones are produced? And then the final component is how responsive are you? The, the woman's body, all things equal. She's designed with the estrogen receptors to be more responsive to estrogens. She responds to androgens as well, mm -hmm. conversely for men. Now, keep in mind something as simple as, I can't believe how many clinicians do not realize how an androgen or estrogen receptor works. Now, let's start there for, for this cascade. We can talk about all of the things about how hormones are produced and how they're metabolized and so on and so forth. But ultimately, how is estrogen affecting your body, Lisa? You're a young woman. You're making estrogens if you're menstruating mm -hmm. uh, or, or if you're on hormone replacement. There's likely some estrogens in your body one way or the other. When estrogen binds to your estrogen receptor, and to the degree that that can happen, mind you, because there are variations to that fidelity, mm -hmm. this complex estrogen to the estrogen receptor, androgen testosterone, DHT to the androgen receptor, these complexes are some of the most potent DNA transcribing complex. They go into the nucleus and they turn on genes. Wow. This is how estrogen and testosterone impacts the human body. They they're not just, I don't know, causing breast development or, 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 or androgenizing the body. They do that by turning on the genes that cause the cells to behave in a more androgenized manner or more estrogenized. So the first thing I want our audience needs, our clinicians, we need to re-acclimatize, re reacquaint ourselves with that these hormones are potently DNA transcribing. They go into the nucleus and they turn on and off genes. That is why they are not to be dealt with trivially, yes. number one. Number two, in a menstruating woman, now I just told you, when estrogen enters a cell and it binds its receptor, it's not just staying in the, in the milieu of the cell, it's going in to the vaults, the nuclear vaults, and turning on and turning off genes. Wow. When you look at the menstrual cycle of, 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 of a relatively normal, repeatable menstrual cycle, you will notice something radically important. Over the course of 28 days, the human female body isn't exposed to estrogen at the same amount every day. And this Not is at all. The human female body in 28 days only has about a six-day or so window in which her estrogens are really elevated, and then it comes down. In other words, what is this telling us from a human biology perspective? It's saying that the type of gene expression changes, the epigenetic phenomena that estrogens cause on your operating manual 
you don't want that to be consistent and constant across the month. And this is very frightening when you look at contraceptive pill or hormone replacement therapies. <laughs> it's most certainly very frightening. No, that is not, let me be clear, that is not to say that there isn't a place or a time for these things. Yeah. I, you know, they are absolutely, a young woman has to have the right to how she treats her body and, and what she does. But there is a place and time for things, number one. You, you at least be at least be empowered before you make this decision as to a knowing what it's doing for you. Saying, okay, look, for these few months of my life, for these couple years of my life, this is going to be a bit more important that I take these precautions. For example, but you should know that to do so indefinitely, month after month, year after year, now they've got clinicians encouraging young women not to even have a bleed through. There's no yeah. point for even the bleeding. Just stay on the, you know, constant level, 24-7, 365, 15 years in. How is this compatible with normal human physiology when you understood what I just said? Yeah. Now, now let's go a step further than that. You see, estrogens do what we just said. They bind their receptors. They go into the cell. They go into the nucleus. They change gene expression as they're meant to for brief periods during the month. Fair enough. Now, once those estrogens have done what they've done for those days, then the point of it is there's a circadian rhythm. The body breaks down those estrogens, metabolizes them, biotransforms them so that they're no longer active. They've been neutralized. And then we hit repeat, rinse and repeat, and we start yep. a new cycle. But here's the point. Yep. Every young woman, Lisa, every young woman, and man for that matter, but let's focus on the ladies, when she made her estrogens or she took her estrogens, because even whether you take it or whether you make it innately or you take it, it doesn't matter, you've got to metabolize the estrogens. Now, every young woman can metabolize estrogens into three byproducts. Yes. Hydroxyestrogen, 4-hydroxyestrogen, 16-alpha-hydroxyestrogen. Every human being does this. And this but is a these, crucial point, people. Absolutely. But these three metabolites do not impact your cells in the same way. You see, if you thought of it, you've made the estrogen, small window, now you want to neutralize it so that the body isn't under its constant influence. So you want this metabolite, this estrogen metabolite, to have lost it's, its, its ability to bind to the receptor. You, you want it to have lost its estrogenizing properties. Lo and behold, 4-hydroxyestrogen, one of those three metabolites, retains the ability to bind the estrogen receptor. In fact, some studies show it might be an even more potent come uh, longer. The, when, it, when it binds and it creates this, this combinatorial ligand and receptor, its DNA transcribing effects are even more potent, much like the analogy between DHT and the androgen receptor versus testosterone. DHT dihydrotestosterone, which is a metabolite of testosterone, has a higher much potency much. binding affinity to the androgen receptor. 4-hydroxyestrogen is to the estrogen receptor as DHT is to the androgen receptor. Wow. Now, the ability, the innate tendency of a young woman 
when she's faced with estrogens to make either the 2-hydroxy, which is considered protective because it has lost its estrogenicity, or the 4-hydroxy, that innate differentiation is radically genetically determinable. Now, if something as simple as that, Lisa, when you stitch these things together, when you understand, look, estrogen should be in my body in a circadian rhythm. I do not want estrogens constant. When I break down those estrogens, I want my body to have had a break from them. And you did not know whether you were 4-hydroxy dominant or not. If you had a tendency to make more of the 4-hydroxy than the 2, and why is 4-hydroxy so naughty? Three reasons. A, it binds the estrogen receptor, not giving your body a break from the estrogenization. One. Two, 4-hydroxy estrogen, if you are not flushing it out of the body, and how do you flush out 4-hydroxy estrogen? Through methylation. The comp gene. The comp gene, which is catechol methyl transferase. And oops, can you imagine if you were innately genetically hydroxy dominant and have the slow count? Because now you're making too much for hydroxyestrin, you have a tendency to do so, and you do not have the enzymatic ability to get rid of it. Now you biostagnate your 4-hydroxyestrin. Do you know what 4-hydroxyestrogen does other than binding the estrogen receptor? Aromesis and quinones. Quinones. Lisa, my God, you're speaking more than some of the best uh, uh, medical biologists that I've spoken to. So they, they, they decompose into quinones. And do you know what quinones do? They get into your DNA. They stick to, they are mutagens. They stick okay. to your DNA, causing the DNA to un, not be able to unravel and repair itself. And by the way, quinones then cause oxidants. In the species, yeah. So here's what you don't want to be. You don't want to be the young woman who is genetically predisposed to overly produce 4-hydroxyestrogen, simultaneously have a poor comp, simultaneously have a low GSTT1, GSTP1, which was the thing that got rid of the quinones, and then have a poor mitochondrial superoxide dismutase or antioxidation to get rid of the oxidants. And add to that you're in your 40s or your 50s and you're making more estrone, which and is a, which by the, way, the breast tissue because it's not in the liver anymore the liver yeah. organ at least it was designed for that type of metabolism you're doing this in the breast tissue now god yeah. forbid okay this so, is where the cancers can come in and this the, is where and that's why we have the epidemi- the epidemiologic rise during that shift where the woman's body shifts from doing that grunt work in her liver which was designed for it to doing that grunt work in estrogenized rich tissues such as breast tissue cervical tissue uh, and ovarian tissue and so on and so forth which of course the human body the female body does not express estrogen receptors the same level for every cell type You know, when you were a wee laddie at nine years old and you could have gone outside, you know, flat chested like any other boy. And, you know, and then when when menarche hit and the body changed, your elbows and forearms didn't change. It was certain zones. And those are the zones that have more estrogen receptors. And this is so this is how we can see, like when you're looking at the phenotype, if we can go look, 
like the, the, the hormone cascade, just for people that are, that are listening, it's going from progesterones and pregnenolones into testosterones, which can sometimes go into DHT, and which then go into the estrogens, your estradiol, your estrone, and your estriol if you're pregnant. Pregnant, yep. When you're older, you have more estrones coming in, which are that's coming from the the other type of uh, testosterone, isn't it? Andrustine Dion. And then it's methylated in these three pathways into the 2-hydroxy, 4-hydroxy, and 16-alpha-hydroxy. The 2-hydroxy being the, the good pathway. Good, yep. And it's anti-inflammatory, the 4-hydroxy yes. being the dangerous one. And this is where, yes. like, if you've got a lot of PMS symptoms, if you've got yes. your breast tissues, like yes. talking personally, and this is probably too much information, but last <laughs> month, like, I've been on a hormone replacement therapy. And this is why I'm so excited about the hormone situation, because obviously I've been put on a standard dose all the way through, right. estrogen, progesterone, right. and DHT. Now, right. all of those can turn into estrogen. Other than the DHT, the progesterones, testosterone, even DHEA can, can uh, cast yeah, you yeah, down yeah. into the estrogen. Yeah. The DHT will have gone past a pathway that it's not going to come back to estrogen. Bit, it can, yeah, by yeah, the way, yeah. reverse pathway effects. Certain oh, things, wow. they, they send signals back up the chain, oh. by the way. The body, oh, yes, absolutely. The body is always looking for, you know, by the way, I mean, that's the whole way in which the hormone, in which the, the, the pill, the contraceptive pill works, that when you give estrogens to the female body, the female body says, well, hold on, if I'm getting it from somewhere, I no longer need to make it internally because it's just showing up. We don't know where it's showing up from, the body speaking to itself, which, by the way, is why when a lot of women, when they, take, they, they go on the pill, they find certain degrees of weight gain, loss of libido. Why? Because when you took this pre-made, of course, this is not for all women because it depends on their genetic cascade. But for some women, you give them estrogens pre-made and the body goes, well, I no longer need to make estrogens. Well, if you, don't, if you no longer need to make estrogens, what were you making your estradiol from? Testosterone. And so if I go give the female body just estradiol, and she goes, well, I no longer need to make my own estradiol. Do you know what else is not going to be made very efficiently? Your testosterone. Wow. And that's why so many young women, they go on the pill. They find, not all, they find their libido tanks on them. They find that they gain weight. They find oh, right. they, their body goes into an estradominance. And of course, their OBG, or they go, oh, no, that's, don't worry. No, that's just a normal occurrence. Well, it's not a normal occurrence unless you know what your pathway is. Are you shutting it down permanently? Like if you're on the pill for no, say five no, years and you stop, no, the estrogen no. pick up again? These are, these are epigenetic feedback phenomena, right? Because remember, when that estradiol enters, the gene expression profile, so think of a, think of a Rubik's Cube, okay? And think of a Rubik's Cube that has been mixed up, okay? And it's, you know, it's, been, it's been altered in whatever way. All of the combinations of the colors of that Rubik's Cube in that time, in that mode, that's representative of the genes that are on and off at a given period of time. And so think of a particular Rubik's Cube and that particular mix is what happens when there's estrogenizing going on. Okay. Now the Rubik's Cube needs to go back to its pre, its, its, its solved mode where everything is nice and set. Okay. 
the time with which the gene expression, the time with which it can revert. This is a critical phenomena. It does revert, uh -huh. but it depends on what the stimuli. So for example, the gene expression, the pro-inflammatory gene expression changes caused by the insulin, insulin receptor complex, almost an identical phenomena. When insulin binds to the insulin receptor, it leaves the cytoplasmic membrane, goes into the nucleus, just like the AR, testosterone, ER, estrogen receptor, and causes gene expression. The insulin, insulin receptor motif the gene expression that it causes is very pro-inflammatory. Yeah. Very pro-inflammatory. Now, the body can return to its non-pro-inflammatory status within hours to days. Wow, for the, it's good. For the it's good news. Yeah. Okay? For the estrogens and the hormone cycle, it takes longer. So you can, and this will be affecting women's uh, fertility. I mean, I've, I've had fertility issues and I was 100%. on the pill from the age of 13 because I had issues. So they put mm -hmm. me on the pill to mask the issues. Now, what I'm expecting to see in my reports when they come back, and I don't know, that I have uh, dominance of 4-hydroxy because I've had fibroids and, and so on um, and infertility and, and all of these sort of um, concomitant sort of problems. Yep. Now, I just want to go in a little bit deeper into this. Um, what is your take then? And is it possible to have hormone replacement therapy? Because obviously there are benefits to having these hormones in our 100%. body for anti-aging. Can I, will I be able to, yeah, and not just me, but will I be able to tweak it so that I can get the right amounts on the right days of the mm -hmm. progesterone, the estrogens and the DHEA and be able to do that safely without causing cancers and so on it's a, br it's a brilliant question now we must to answer that question is and so let me just say this and this is not just to be a blanket disclaimer i am absolutely emphasizing being on the a birth control whether it's a pill or not being on hormone replacement bhrt or versions of it not only is it appropriate in certain circumstances, it's life-saving, it's life-transformative in a positive way in many circumstances. Mm. We're, we're by no means saying or even trying to hint that it should that women, young women, men, menopausal women should be deprived of this. By God, no. First, to begin with, despite any evidence of the, or the other, that's a young woman's body. She makes the decision what's happening to her body. So no two ways we're not hinting of that. What we're saying is everyone and the scientific literature, we understand that the outcomes of these things, the outcomes of 100 young women going on the same birth control pill, 100 young middle-aged women going on hormone replacement, we absolutely know that there are differential outcomes vis-a-vis -vis risks for certain deleterious outcomes, be they strokes, on the pill, be they cancer effects or others on hormone replacement. We know this happens. So what we're trying to say is, do we just leave it as a statistic? Do we just say there's a 10% risk increase? Or do we say, look, you fall in the bucket where we can really tease out, are you specifically the person that is at risk? Or conversely, beautifully, you're not the person that is at risk. So if you do choose to be in BHRT, you can do so now without necessarily that ghostly whisper of fear that many young women have, even when they choose to go. So it works both ways. Now, now to answer your question. 
when you understand that these hormones are causing gene expression changes, and these gene expression changes are what alters cell behavior to any number of outcomes, we need to start looking at hormone replacement. If we're going to do it intelligently, mm. we've got to start to understand that the human body is a circadian, circadian. creature. We are, we are circadian within our 24 hours. We are circadian within monthly. Uh, it's why ancient wisdom talks about the moon cycles and so forth. So th there's actually wisdom in these things. The, the human body is a circadian creature. Even the foods we eat at different seasons, often when you look really carefully, they, they, and the people who were indigenous to that region, mind you, it speaks to certain nutrients that the body needs more at certain times versus other times. It's one of the reasons when we coach people, when we talk to people about taking micronutrients, we are by no means uh, for, in fact, we are against the wanton, you know, 50 million things of micronutrients every morning at 7 a.m., gobble, 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 because that's not how the human body was designed. You know, even if I told you you needed these 15 ingredients at these different concentrations within 24 hours that you need, your body needs that. It doesn't mean that I can give you the 15 things all at once at 7 a.m. Oh, I'm right? that. These nutrients, <laughs> the body, because nutrients do what? They get into the cells, they act as building blocks, but they also act to change gene expression. And again, I want you to, to, to focus on the fact, coming back to the hormones, that these hormones are causing gene expression changes. So the first thing we have to do is we need to become better acquainted with what are the healthy changes that hormone replacement is accomplishing. Mm. Not just what is healthy, but when is it healthy? And the amplitude of the changes. All three things are different, but yet uh, correlated. The what, the when, and the how much yes. of the change. Okay. Now, secondly, we have to understand that when we take hormones as part of an anti-aging or, or rejuvenating or simply actually therapeutic, forget anti-aging, just simply therapeutic for this, for this menopausal young woman to be able to sleep for heaven's sakes and to be able to, you know, these are things you can't tell this young woman she shouldn't try a, a healthy BHRT protocol. But when we realize what the hormones are doing, think about it. Are we supporting the mitochondria? Are we changing gene expression, causing the cells to behave differently, but we've paid no attention to are the mitochondria, the energy power plants, keeping up with the changes that we're bringing about because of the gene expression, because of the hormone replacement? Are we doing that? Are we, uh, are we accomplishing, based on our nutrient protocol, that which was better suited for these changes? So the that's the long answer. The short answer is this, therefore. Most certainly can we come to a genomic, to, to a hormone replacement protocol, but we need to look at the individuality. You see, quick granularity. A woman converts her pregnenolone into her androgens via the gene CYP17A1, CYP17-alpha1. Mm -hmm. This gene and its associated enzyme comes in a fast version and a slow version. Slow here is not bad. Slow is actually desirable.
Pro. It's the beneficial version. So in other words, by comparison to the fast version of the enzyme, the slow version of pregnenolone to androgen is universally considered, all things equal, healthier. Now, just with one, this one piece of information, a young woman has the fast sub-17A1, a young woman has the slow sub-17A1. I choose to put them on hormone replacement. She chooses to go on hormone replacement with pregnenolone, progesterone. But by giving these two women the same progesterone dose, the androgenization potential that is brought about in the young woman who had the fast sub-17A1 is more than the androgenization potential than the young woman that had the slow sub-17A1. Yes. And then, of course, I made my androgens. But then, of course, my CYP19A1 aromatase is going to take that testosterone and convert it into estradiol or that androstene dion and convert it into uh, estrone. And by the way, the aromatase CYP19A1 comes in a faster, medium, and a slow version. Did I know which version this young woman has? So should she be on a protocol that is progesterone, testosterone, and estrogen, if she, was a, if she had the FAST-17 and FAST-19, a woman that has a FAST-19A1 and a FAST-17A1 and is put on a triad hormone replacement, she's going to be a young woman that quite likely we are over-estrogenizing. Wow. Because everything in that cascade, the progesterones I, are going to androgens, the androgens are going to estrogens, the estrogens we're giving are estrogens, and then and we God forbid GST problems. God forbid. And there will be a disaster for that woman. So she would be at risk for the cancers and this the estrogen problems. And by the way, this is what we've clearly shown and repeatedly shown in the data. Lisa, I can't tell you how many young women fall into the bucket that they were 4-hydroxy dominant with poor cunt and or poor detox. And they should, again, we're talking, we see thousands of patients, not tens or hundreds, thousands. And I can't tell you how many young women of that category came to the clinic thinking they had Lyme disease because it's a phenomena and it's a problem here in South Ontario, Northeast America. Why? Because 4-hydroxyestrogen and quinones cause the same neuroinflammatory effects as neuroborreliosis. And you know, I just had to ask them one question and they, they were convinced they had chronic Lyme disease. And, and by the way, their tests were coming back negative, i.e. for Lyme testing at the most sensitive levels. And I said, have you been pregnant in the last six years that you thought you had Lyme? And the young woman said, yes. And I said, did you notice that while you were pregnant, your symptoms went away? And her eyes opened up and she began to cry and she goes, Dr. Mansour, I actually told my husband, I wish I could just stay pregnant because when I'm pregnant I get a relief from all of my symptoms and then I had to point out to her when you're pregnant you are estriol dominant and your body isn't making the 4-hydroxyestrogen what you're getting when you're pregnant is you're getting a relief from estrotoxicity if you had Lyme disease Lyme disease this doesn't take a holiday during pregnancy no right and so, and so the, estro the estrogen dominance and estrogen toxicity are also two different Two different. Things. Absolutely. A woman can be estro-dominant and be perfectly non-toxic. You know, she, she has a certain 
physiology that's consistent with her estrogen dominance, but she lives her life perfectly healthy because when she makes those estrogens, maybe a bit more, you know, body type, but she's breaking them down efficiently. She's methylating the 2-hydroxy efficiently and a little bit of 4-hydroxy. She's detoxifying the GSTs and the soup. And she's as healthy as can be, all things equal, her heart, her diet, her lifestyle environment. So you first should determine what we call the androgen-estrogen balance. So where are you on the on, on the spectrum from androgen dominance to estrogen dominance. And remember, this is relevant to men and women, okay? So where are you? Then after that you go, depending, particularly for the woman, depending on your estro dominance or not, where are you with estrotoxicity? See, how many young women, um, Lisa, they were estrotoxic, estrotoxic meaning they, they had the, predisposition, there's CYP1B1, cytochrome P451B1, which is the enzyme pathway to go to the 4-hydroxy. That was dominant in them. They may or may not have had the low COMT and other features. They were estrotoxic, but they were andro-dominant. In so other words, these were young women. There we go. So that as, a, as a teenager, these young women, they were more athletic, leaner. They mm. did have some irregularities with their menstrual cycle, mind you, oftentimes. But they were leaner. They, they were able to put on, you know, not very, not much bosom development, leaner cut, muscle striation, and so on and so forth. They were andro-dominant. But then because of wanting to normalize their menstrual cycle sometimes, they get now during this period of time, they were andro-dominant, which was suppressing, which was camouflaging the estrotoxicity. Now you put this young woman and you go and you give her pre-made estrogens, which her body had not been doing in an almost self-preserved, you know, in, in this in this beautiful, miraculous way in which things tend to occur in the right combinations. But now you go give her estrogens. What have you done? Yeah. You have literally pulled the Komodo open and exposed her estrotoxicity. Toxicity. Oh. And then all the and then all the things that you start seeing happening and by the way we've had i i deal thanks to a brilliant young scientist dr dan turner and his mentor before him dr andy walsh at the, the red bull high performance uh division yeah so of course you you certainly know about the red bull high performance yeah. athletes yeah. we dr turner and i we have screened many of the most elite Red Bull High Performance athletes in, a, in, a, in an amazing program that Dr. Turner has put together, including the genetics and the genomics that we do. And along the way, we met these, you know, goober athletic young women that were yeah. just so high performing. But at a certain point, you know, early 20s for other personal reasons, went on the pill and all hell broke loose in yeah. terms of health, uh, body weight metrics and, you know, per, per performance, that is. Yeah. Only to very classically observe that she was, the very fact that she was such a really good triathletic, triathletic young woman per the body type, where she was a very andro-dominant young woman, she was andro-dominant but didn't realize she was estrotoxic. And that estrotoxicity only showed its ugly head once she went on the birth control pill. Wow. And then does their sporting performance change? Do they get more hip flare and breast development and 
uh, cellulite, you know, with very I mean, I'm somewhat embarrassed by the degree of accuracy. If I see a young woman's genomic profile without ever having seen them, I can actually predict body type. I can predict yes. proclivity to cellulite. These are not, by the way, these are not loosey-goosey. No. You know, this, this is real post-inflammation, vascular events, propensity for adipose tissue development and deposition. They're all driven to a large degree by a hormone. Awesome and this is where it's so frustrating, you know, when you're dealing with, uh, we, you know, we coach um, 700 athletes and we've got a lot of women who are athletes and who are struggling with their weight despite perfect diet, what you would consider a, a very good diet, exercising crazily and then uh, they, they, they're still putting on weight, they've still got cellulite, they've still got, and they're like, what do I need to do? Why don't I look like that girl down the road who's, indeed, who doesn't indeed. exercise one iota and looks like, you know, Elle McPherson? What, what is the difference, you know? It's, it's, it's very no, it's, it's, crazy. It's, it's, I mean, these, these are really personal things that, that, that it, it, it can really needle away. It can really erode away at your self-confidence, not because of not being body encompassing and being proud of yourself. No, that's not the point here. The point is to the degree of what you, a young woman or a young man thinks they're putting in and they're not seeing what they perceive to be the outcome, you know, they, they begin to go, well, what am I doing it for? What am I doing? You know, why am I doing it for? Right. And so to help them a, a pre, have, have that epiphany, the epiphany moment that says, by the way, when I ask a young woman and I say, look, have you started noticing or do you notice per your, no, I'm looking at their profile. So they're like, why are you asking me this? When I say, have you noticed that three to five days prior to your menstrual cycle, you really get a bit more breast tenderness and lip, you know, nipple tenderness? Uh, yes. Well, those three to five days prior to menstruation are the days that your body is particularly to the degree of your the, the, the hydroxy, the 4-hydroxy, 2-hydroxy, that's when those things are accumulating in the body. And if you happen to be more 4-hydroxy dominant, you're going to show profoundly more signs of inflammation. And of course, as you get closer and closer to that pre-perimenopausal period where you become more estrone dominant, and hence the 4-hydroxy estrone is showing up in the breast tissue more, and hence the symptomology, right? So once you can show these young women that things that they just thought were, you know, just in their personal crazy perception, they just never could understand it, and you join the dots for them, what you've done here, Lisa, is you've empowered them. It's not fatalistic. And then brings to the last point. To the degree that you see the pathway is to the degree that you might then, often, not always, I want to be clear, there, there's still things. You know, when I teach uh, Lisa... The first slide that I put up says humility. Still we have to, <laughs> have to have the humility that by no means do we understand everything. No. Far from it. Far from it. But should that leave us feeling um, incapable to act? No. Because of the things that we do know, and as we're continuing, this, this has been the way that any type of health and medicine is practiced. You practice what you know to the best of your ability, and the more you understand, you bring it in. Without choking on it, you bring it in bit by bit until you find that happy place where your body... And, 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 and the other thing, Lisa, is once you understand these gene expression changes, keep in mind the diet the lifestyle that was potentially, that were those things that were potentially optimal for you in your 20s, 
you might you, not, you often than not can't be sitting in your 40s going well that's what worked for me in my 20s well the way in which your genomic manual was being used in the 20s is not the same it's the same genomic manual but it's not being used in the same way wow. 20 years later or 25 years later wow, that this is just absolutely mind blowing dr man so i could honestly i'd love to just sit for days like this learning from you <laughs> no 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 and, I, I, I learn i learn more honestly and I don't, i'm not just saying that I, I, because these are the conversations that you know as you digest these things and this is what's going to happen lisa god willing when you and you will we will do your profile together oh, that'd be amazing you are the n of one right? So when you learn about these things, what happens is you're the person that then starts sipping. So wait a minute, hold on. Is this related to this? Is this symptomology? Is this? And that's where the data comes from. That's only that because no one collects N of one data points. In fact, it's the very antithesis of a meta-analysis. It's the antithesis of a meta-analysis. But Data is at the N of one. That's where your data is at. You know, so for example, you know, this is a cool, and, and maybe as we wrap up with this, um, I now ask individuals, I say, you know, do you happen to be one of those individuals that when you get an insect bite, just, just a regular, just a regular insect bite, are you the person for whom that insect bite stays flared up, you know, itchy and, and irksome much longer than the average person, as we know some of us that have? And if you say yes, it's an awesome predictor that your methylation cycle is suboptimal. Oh, wow. And not just that, it is almost always associated with the suboptimal SHMT1 and MTR, serine hydroxymethyltransferase and methionine synthase. Those two genes, when suboptimal in the methylation cascade, is extremely closely correlated by asking a completely benign, completely mundane question about insect bites, you would be amazed by the accuracy of the association. Without the Why? Team. <laughs> because the insect bite inflammation, we said very early in the conversation, inflammation is inflammation. It doesn't matter what initiates the inflammation. If you are unable to douse the fire of your inflammation, whatever caused it, be it repetitive joint injury, be it surgery, be it bacterial infection, viral infection, uh, toxic inflammation, your methylation isn't working properly. Wow. So these, oh man, these insights are just absolutely, this is going to change the entire, well, I'm hoping it will, the entire medical model. You know, the drugs that we're taking, the hormone stuff that we're taking, uh, I mean, T.S. Wiley and the cyclic nature of the hormones, going back to the hormones, I'm in the middle of her book at the moment and and looking at the whole cycle uh, and joining the dots. And then, you know, we we do also epigenetics, which is, again, another important piece of the puzzle. Hugely, hugely important. Hugely important. Um, Lisa, in, in New Zealand, um, what's the first, you know, when, for, for teething, baby teething and, and fevers, what's the first drug? What's the first, um, do you guys use baby Panadol, baby Tylenol, yeah. baby yeah, ibuprofen? Panadol, Panadol, I think, yep. I'm... So in, in North America, more so, um, it's uh, acetaminophen, baby, i.e. Tylenol, okay? So here is a drug, Lisa, to this point, when you talk about, Honestly, changing a mindset. 
So if you take as human beings, literally the first and most used drug in the human population is often acetaminophen from a, or, or it's, or it's cor- corollaries. Yes. Acetaminophen, Tylenol, is that pain, is that analgesic, antipyretic that we use from the earliest, from baby teething and fevers, vaccination, post-vaccination, into adulthood. Okay, fair enough. Acetaminophen, when it is metabolized by CYP2E1, 2 Edward one is converted into a noxious, it's in the same family as the quinones, NAPQ. So acetaminophen, which is the analgesic, when it is first metabolized from A to B by cytochrome P452 Edward 1 to Epsilon 1, gets converted into a potent liver toxin, NAPQ. How is NAPQ removed from the body? Via GSTT1. Now, if you knew that you had the fast CYP2E1 and the deleted GSTT1, do you really think you want Tylenol as your go-to medication no. from the time you were four months old until, do you, just, just that one thing, that one thing that when we open our medicine cabinet in, in, in developed countries, in any country, you open that cabinet, everyone's giving their children Again, I am not saying don't treat a fever. I'm by no means saying don't use Tylenol if you're in pain and it happens to be what's appropriate for you. But I am saying, can you imagine, Lisa, when knowledge become more intelligent about these things? So that without being informed. Ibuprofen does not go through that pathway. So if you have this potential combo, consider using Ibuprofen is your painkiller, not acetaminophen, and so on and so forth. And so these are all parts of the same puzzle. What is the puzzle? The human genome. What is the solution? Intelligent, non-superficial, meaningful reading of the manual. That's what has to happen. That's what we've committed our lives to. And that's what I hope, God willing, to leave as my legacy. You're definitely doing that, Dr. Mansour. Look, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm so excited for the, what this will bring in the future, the suffering that this is going to save, the, pe- the people's lives this is going to save. Um, and, you know, I'm as, I'm as passionate in my way about this as well now, and I'm, I'm going to be a part of this, um, bringing this out into the world. So I'm super excited. We are going to try to get Dr. Mansour, list, um, those listening, we're trying to bring Dr. Mansour down later on this year to New Zealand. Um, my big goal, I've got to go and work out how the heck we make this happen. But, you know, we'll with it will, there's a way. <laughs> if, you, if you invite me, I'll, you know, just, it, it just, it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm beyond honoured. I'm, I'm tickled pink. Uh, I will find my way down there and, and, and to whomever would want to listen. Oh. And, and just, you know, we're just, we're trying to create something that is based on, on good knowledge, that is created on a, 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 a by-flow of information, a by-flow of energy, just people that want to make a change and not, not make a change because, you know, there's sometimes a, we change just for change's sake. No, we want to make a change where it matters yeah. and, and, and empower people. And this is where it comes to, it ultimately comes down to empowerment. It comes down to your energy, Lisa, is just awesome. It's been <laughs> such an honor speaking with you. Please, whenever, if ever you need something from me or you feel like there's something else that, that I might be able to help with, it would be my single honor to help you.
Oh, Dr. Mansour, you're just absolute gold. I, I can see like your passion comes through in your work and the, the absolute, I talked to Sanjay, one of your colleagues that you have on your team and he just yes. says, Dr. Mansour does not have any hobbies. This is his <laughs> life. He is changing the world. <laughs> and I just think, I totally get this guy. Uh, and, and you have a, a massive vision and I can see that vision and I can see that this is going to help so, so many people. So thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Mansour. It's just been an honor, an absolute honor. And to, to all of the, what do we call New Zealanders? Kiwis. We're the Kiwis. Kiwis. There we go. So to all of the Kiwis and beyond the Kiwis, I have actually a different story, a different time. I have a, and I'm not saying this to be uh, placating or to be in, you know, self-engendering to your community. I have a particular love. Someone that is exceedingly dear to me is from New Zealand. And it's, I've, I've always had this love, the people there, your, your, gosh, yep. your governance there. It's yes, just a different yep. modality. Yep. And yep. so if I ever come down, though, if I have the honor to come in September, September, I think, maybe? Yes, well, we're hoping for September. That's what we're, we're aiming for. So I'd be, I'd be the one that'd be grinning from ear to ear. So oh, there we go. Oh, this is so exciting. Dr. Mansour, thank you so much for your time. I know you've been exhausted and you're still stuck on here for an hour. This is the longest <laughs> podcast I've ever had. <laughs> Sorry, my apologies for having carried on too much. If your brain is not functioning at its best, then check out what the team at vlight.com do. Now, vlight produces photobiomodulation devices. Now, your brain function depends largely on the health of the energy sources of the brain cells, in other words, the mitochondria. And research has shown that stimulating your brain with near-infrared light revitalizes mitochondria. Now, I use these devices daily for both my own optimal brain function and also for other age-related decline issues and also for my mum's brain rehabilitation after her aneurysm and stroke. So check out what the team do at vilight.com, that's V-I-E-L-I-G-H-T.com, and use the code TAMITI at checkout to get 10% off any of their devices. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review, and share with your friends. And head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmity.com 